0: six, as I said, just going through that whole chapter, Uh, chapter seven as well. It seems like he gets a lot more detailed in regards to just how treacherous uh, Israel had become. Uh, I want to remind you, I think I said this morning, uh, I made reference to 722 BC uh, being the Southern Kingdom is actually 722 for the Northern Kingdom. Uh, I had those two dates in my mind. I was talking Southern Northern Kingdom, 586 for the Southern Kingdom when they finally fell uh, but they both ultimately went into captivity and I'm, I'm convinced that part of the reason for Judah uh, and their fall was that they were not they were not mindful of the prophet's messages to Israel. Uh, they had an example and they were witnesses to Israel's fall uh, yet they persisted with the same mentality uh, or the or the same mindset uh, that produced that fall in Israel's life. and as I was sharing this morning, uh, I really do believe that, um Israel's struggle and also Judah to some degree was that they they minimized particularly the sacrificial system. Um, God ordained that and as I said this morning very specifically uh, so that it might foreshadow what would be the ultimate sacrifice in which his redemption of his people was rooted. But they seem to have forgotten its its typolo- typology and accepted it as the theme. And I do believe that God fellowshiped and related to his people based upon their obedience to keep those sacrifices up until that point. But that doesn't mean that they and themselves justified them before God. They pointed towards Christ. And if you miss Christ, then all the, all the religious adherence you want is never going to be sufficient. Uh, and I think that was Israel's error and even Judah's error as well. And you see that. Uh, you see that, I think, unfolding in chapter 6 and really throughout all the prophets, not only the minor prophets, but uh, the major prophets as well. So let's read those 11 verses again, and then maybe I'll, or uh, let's read verse 4 through 11 again, and maybe I'll do a bit of review, uh, but then follow up on the final points that I wanted to make this morning. So uh, after having uh, called them to return through Hosea the prophet in verses 1 and 3, Uh, One through three, Hosea picks up here. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces. By the way, listen to the wording here. I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like light that goes forth. Forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. They have dealt treacherously against me. Uh, I'll come back to verses eight and nine particularly, but Gilead, he says, here is a city of wrongdoers tracked with bloody footprints. And as Raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to shake him, surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. And I do believe first verse eleven is prophetic in the in the long sense. And so, as I was sharing this morning, um, it begins here in verse four with what I call divine exasperation. Uh, I would clarify that to uh, to indicate that God knows all things. Uh, he knows what he is doing. He knows what the men and of Israel were doing in the in the purest sense of the word. Uh, you cannot exasperate God. Uh, for he works all things according to the counsel of his will. But in what we call anthropomorphology, uh, he puts this in manly terms so that we might understand God's pressing the people uh, when he says, "What will I? What am I to do with you, O Israel?" And so it expresses to us. Uh, the ridiculousness if you if you will of Israel's resistance to him and as I shared this morning I really think the verse was intended to illuminate uh, the many mercies God had poured into their lives uh, and even the mercies of affliction and discipline uh, they had persistently resisted those things Uh, I had it written in my notes but I didn't refer to it this morning but in Matthew 23 uh, verse 37 to 39, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, remember he looks out over the heights of Jerusalem's there and he says to them, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killeth the prophets, how often I would have taken you under my wings as a hen does her chicks, but you would not. And then he concludes that saying to them, therefore your house is left to you desolate. And so, really, this is a a prophetic, in in Hosea, it's almost a prophetic version of what Jesus was saying then. In fact, I think that statement and and the mission of Christ has a lot to do with verse 11 uh, in this particular text regarding the harvest appointed for Judah when I restore the fortunes of my people. So, uh, they had a harvest coming as well, so that divine exasperation as i shared this morning very much applies to our own nation how we've taken for granted so much so uh, and even in our own individual lives and i think in the church even in america we've taken for granted so long the freedoms uh, that we have to worship as we see fit uh, according to the best we understand of the scriptures we've taken that for granted so long as though it's a guarantee that it'll always be there but that's a mercy that's a mercy. Uh, not every nation enjoys that mercy. There are people who are gathering this very day, this very moment together at the risk of their lives in secret places just to worship God. Uh, so, so that's not a guarantee that is a mercy. And we have taken that mercy for granted. Uh, look at the empty church buildings where we gather to worship our public places of worship. Uh, they're, they're in large part empty. And part of the time when they're full, uh, it's to worship a God of their own making, And so we see crowds of 10,000 people gathering together, and there's no biblical Jesus involved in that at all. So we've perverted all those mercies and produced in our nation today a darkness that we're all beginning to see and beginning to even tremble before. Uh, Well, those are the same sins of Israel that's what they had done. They had reduced all these blessings and all these mercies in many ways down to just some religious routine that they kept. And if they checked all the boxes, they could be guaranteed of God's blessings. Those were mercies and Israel had come away from that. As I shared this morning as well, in Judah, uh, there was a common seed. And I think that's why he includes Judah in these warnings. Uh, to me, uh, that was the most the most piercing for me as far as application in terms of America, uh, the church in America today uh, is that we need to really be mindful of what, what judgment God brings upon another people, uh, as individual Christians, we need to be mindful when we see God bringing a heavy hand of discipline into the lives of someone uh, that we know who may be professing Christ. And we need to think in terms of whether or not the seeds that are bearing that fruit in their life for which God has brought discipline are being sown in our own lives. I really mean with all of my heart, that's something we need to think about. Because I don't know about you, but I feel sure you're this way, but I don't want to sow the same seeds as as the thief and the murderer has in his heart and only have the grace of not of not letting those come to fruit to the to the degree that his does. In other words, I don't want the same rude experience, just not those severe consequences. And I don't want to deceive myself into thinking that somehow I'm a little better or a little smarter or God loves me a little more than to to, to allow that fruit to be born in my life and to bring such affliction in my life. I want to be mindful that when I see that brother stumble and drift away and. And, and reject the, the gentle mercies of God to call him back and then God bring a severe hand in his, to his life. I don't want to just conclude that, oh, he must have done something terribly wrong while I think I'm working okay. Because it may be that the, the seed that produced that perhaps of pride uh, has taken root in my own heart. It just hasn't manifested itself in the same way, but the trajectory is the same. And that's exactly why I think Judah is included here, because Israel had borne the fruit of seeds, as it were. And it's as though the prophet is saying to Israel, uh, this is the consequence of the fruit you've borne. Now the severe hand of God's judgment has come upon you. Oh, by the way, Judah, listen up because the same seeds are being manifest in your lives. And don't think that somehow or another, you're gonna be spared from a similar judgment if it bears fruit in your life as it has in Israel. So there's a warning there. And that's a warning in our lives as well. Certainly when we see a professing Christian go away from God and and endure the heavy hand of God's discipline, uh, we ought to pray for them. We ought to lift them up in prayer. But at the same time, like I was sharing this morning as a kid, we ought to tremble, we ought to do a little self-examination to see if whether or not the seeds that produce that in their lives are present in a in an earlier form in our own lives. And I said pride because I think pride in its largest, in its most comprehensive definition is the enemy of everybody in this room. And I mean pride to going down to self-sufficiency, self-determination, self-aggrandizement, self-centeredness, that is the root of pride that, that will take root in all of our hearts, the one that we are so most vulnerable to falling to. Well, that's, if that seed produces an arrogance, which brings about a blasphemy and the heavy hand of God upon a, in a life, uh, I have to question what those seeds will bring about in my life. How will they be manifest in my life? And so it, again, for me, uh, that drives me back to the cross and to the desperate need I have for the mercy of God in my life so that those seeds not only will not take root, but that they will never bear fruit like that as well. So I spoke this morning in regards to that. Uh, Verse four got into this and there was a lot here. Uh, I think you could probably preach a sermon or a series of sermons on the issue that he brings up in verse four, which was their, their wavering loyalty. There is so much involved in that loyalty. Uh, It helped me to think of the word in terms also of devotion, of consecration, of of obedience, of dedication. That's what was fainting and fleeting in their lives, and it was fickle. Uh, It would it would be there one moment and be gone the next, and it seemed to be um, their passion seems to ride upon whether or not they're particularly comfortable in that particular situation. As I shared this morning though their sins were many these were only evidences though were only evidences of the lightness of heart and mind with which they honored the terms of their covenant with God in verse 7 again he says like Adam they transgress the covenant uh, th- that seems to me in our generation to be a point of emphasis is that it is not enough to deal and handle the things of God with lightness of mind and lightness of heart uh, I don't do too many jokes, but I remember thinking years ago, uh, with the Bible open and in a pulpit is not a really good place to be a comedian. Uh, what we're dealing with is far <clears throat> too weighty to, to diminish in that way. It is literally everything, even saying tonight, it is literally a life and death matter for all of us, life and death, eternity with Christ or eternity separated from God. It is a matter of life and death, and there ought to be gravity always involved in the thinking about these things. And it seems as though Israel had forgotten the gravity, and according to their prosperity, just presumed the blessings of God were going to come upon them simply because they were His chosen people, and that they would do uh, some some rote or routine obedience, which it implies here that they would continue to offer sacrifices and bring their burnt offerings. But yet God says to them something strange, especially to the Jew who thought that was the priority of God. He says to them, I delight, I delight in other things. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. I delight in the knowledge of God rather than burn offerings. Well, that should have been a signal to Israel. We're missing something. Uh, obviously in the Northern kingdom, they were offering their offerings in a, in an unappointed place. And it began to be mingled with all really pagan ideology. So they were clearly sinning in that. But even in Judah, which he's including here to some degree, they were offering the sacrifices perhaps in the right place. But yet they were offering him with this lightness of heart and this lightness of mind in many cases. And God says to them, I delight. I delight in loyalty to this covenant, this, this devotion to the covenant not in the sacrifices. I delight in the knowledge of God that you know me, not in the burnt offerings. You can imagine the Jew who went in or us in our application, we go in, we offer up our sacrifices and our conscience is clear and we're off to the next thing and we've done our duty. God is surely pleased with us and his blessings in our lives will continue. I mean, I can't think of anything more dishonoring to God to, to offer up sacrifices to God merely as a way of a checking a box to assure his continued blessings into our lives. The whole purpose of the sacrifice was to display that without the shedding of blood, as I said this morning, there is no remission of sins. And Israel, Judah, and all you Gentiles, your redemption is, is hinged upon that shedding of blood, not of bulls, not of goats, but of the lamb of God who comes and takes away the sins of the world. If you miss that in your sacrifices, it's not delighting to God. And it is not honoring the terms, the covenant of God to, to be mindless of that reality of what that's pointing towards. So that wavering um, loyalty was the issue, uh, as I've shared along that as well, the disregard for God's delight. They're honoring of him and they're living under the terms of his covenant so as to inherit, inherit the fullness of the fulfillment and blessings of it. I wrote in my words, in my own words, my margin here, recognizing the very reasons for the sacrifices and burnt offerings, the foreshadowing, the means and the method of their own redemption. he speaks here often in restoration, but I think Hosea is always speaking in terms, both temporal and eternal. There is a restoration for Israel. And it's going to be brought about by the shedding of blood, by sacrifice, but not by your bulls and by your goats. You honor that. You return and fulfill those things. And in the temporal sense, God may bless Israel with prosperity and vines and vineyards and fruitfulness in the land. He may do that. But your restoration, your redemption, Israel, is rooted not in in that. That's temporal survival. But your eternal survival and redemption is rooted in Christ. And it was so from the beginning. It was so from the very beginning. I hear a lot of discussions uh, among some of the more reform-minded in regards to covenants. And I've always, uh, I've always, it's kind of baffling to me in some ways because they'll say, well, you, you sound like a covenant theologian. And other times they say, no, you sound like a dispensationalist. And I kind of scratch my head and I'm thinking, well, I'm not intentionally trying to be either. Uh. I believe God always had one means of redeeming lost men and that was Christ. Now, I believe that God interacted with his people and with the world in different ways, always pointing forward and shadowing towards that one means of redemption, which is Christ. Whether he did that in the Jewish people through the covenants of law and through the Abrahamic covenants and through the, um, uh, the Edenic covered all the way by all the covenants, or whether he did that dispens you want to say he did that dispensationally down through the generations. I'm okay. Uh, I'm okay with that. Just as long as you understand that all of those covenants were screaming Christ for Jew and for Gentile. That's what they're screaming. That's what Isaiah 53 is talking about. Not the millions of bulls and goats to be sacrificed, but the one lamb who would be sacrificed, who would take away the sins of the world. I love John the Baptist when Jesus is descending the banks of the Jordan to be baptized, and John turns and As if he's pointing to people, behold, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, there were countless millions of lambs being slain by millions who perhaps thought that that made them somehow right with God. If it did, it is only as a matter of faith and obedience in the moment. But in its eternal sense, it did not until this lamb came. I think that's the message of Hosea here. That's the message of the minor prophets. Yes, Israel, by their defiance and rejection of this God, are rejecting the very means of their own deliverance. And so whether they lost the promised land or whether they lost the ultimate promised land hinged upon what they did in regards to their interactions with God. So they disregarded that and they did not delight in what God delighted in. Their disregard was heartless and mindless conformity to religious practice, while hardened and blinded to its full and true purpose, which I think was Christ. Uh, I think the same indictment might be leveled against many, many churches in our generation gathered today. Uh, they, are, they are checking the boxes of religious observance. Many of those they've never sought out in Scripture for their own, they're just following a tradition that they grew up in. They're just going through the motions. I've done my religious expression. Now I can set aside my spiritual man and go out and live throughout this week in the flesh and do all the things of this world. And I'll come back next Sunday and check those boxes. And God, by the way, by doing so, I am obligating you to continue these blessings of good health, prosperity, wonderful jobs, and great careers. Um, that, that feels to me to be almost blasphemous because it takes so lightly the mercies of God. It assumes that God is going to be satisfied and your debt for your sin against an infinitely holy God being paid for if you just do the right thing every day and every week and every Sunday. Uh, My heart breaks for people who are called in that deception. As I mentioned this morning as well, the transgression was like Adam's in a lot of ways, uh, mainly in that what he gave up or what he, gave away in terms of the covenant. For Adam, the cost was Eden, provision, purpose and life. For Israel, it was the promised land, provision, purpose and life. And as I shared this morning, what it was to Israel is essentially what it is to us. Uh, to, To reject that is essentially to pay the price to give up life as well. So tonight, just to conclude in verses five through seven, and then 8 through 10, and then verse 11 And finally, I just want to look at their affliction and the root. In fact, he picks up uh, with the word therefore. So after he says verse 4, he says, therefore, or I will, here's a good help for you. When you read that word, you can also say for this reason or for this cause, that's what he's meaning here. So Hosea is saying, or God is saying through Hosea, therefore, this is why Because of this, I have hewn them and then I have slain them. Very aggressive words, uh, very harsh, severe words. Certainly he had disciplined them. Certainly there had been times, in fact, the very blessing at the time of Hosea was as they were prospering. So that itself was a testimony that if you are my people and I I have obligated myself to care for you. And you have obligated yourself in this covenant to act and behave in a certain way towards me. And so my mercies have been poured out upon you, but yet you take those for granted. You think that they are your deserve simply because you identify as the people of God. As a result of that and a result of their resistance, he uses this harsh terms. Certainly the judgment that was coming upon them as hewn and slain. Literally, I think truly... And also metaphorically, I say metaphorically because he says here by the prophets and by the word of my mouth, which was spoken by the prophets. So there is this disintegration. We've heard that word. I like that word. There is this dividing of the people of Israel, uh, not only uh, in the nation, but as a spirit. But because of this, because you have taken for granted these things and because you have not desired loyalty and desired rather and because your loyalty was fading and fleeting like a cloud and like the dew, because of this persistence in this, then I have hewn now, I have brought this this severity into your life. And certainly it was going to be literally ultimately in their judgment in their captivity, but also metaphorically by bringing the word of God to them. This severe condemnation and judgment that we read about. It's funny to me because there's something in me, in my flesh, that worried about preaching through the minor prophets because I worry that the people of God will say, that's just too heavy, <laughs> You know, you're beating us down. We want to be encouraged and lifted up. And so there's a reluctance to preach the severity of God because I don't want to discourage people, but listen, unless you understand the severity of God, when we move away from God, you won't appreciate the mercy of God that rescues us from undergoing the severity of God. And the book of Paul tells us clearly that these things happen to them for examples to us upon whom the end of the ages have come. So so when you hear heavy and severe preaching and judgment from God upon sinful people, his own people or those outside the Jewish people, when you hear about that as a Christian, rejoice. Rejoice because such wrath was due you but on Christ's behalf, it was taken from you and poured out upon him. And you have fellowship with God and redemption and restoration and joy because that wrath is no longer yours to receive. So when you hear heavy preaching, don't flee from it. Don't repulse from it. Hear it and try your best to feel the weightiness of it. And that seems to be what Hosea is trying to communicate to the people with the severity of the language. And it was true, as I say, he's not making empty threats here. So the Lord says to Israel, I have hewn them in pieces. Reminiscent of verse 14 where he says in chapter 5 where he says, I will be like a young lion to Ephraim and a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. So your affliction is coming from me. The one in whom you were entered into a covenant and before whom there were obligations and you have denied those and in so doing have denied me. And so I am going to tear, I hewn and I slay. But I thought it was interesting and maybe more me- metaphorical when he uses the instrument of that hewing and of that slaying as the prophets and by the words of his mouth. I think God could bring that about literally. He spoke creation into existence, and I think he speaks, or by the word of his mouth, the, 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 the adversaries of Israel would come to power and rise up and ultimately overthrow Israel. The same is true with Judah. We know that for a fact because God says in his word himself, I raised up Cyrus. Uh, he, raised up, uh, he raised up kings to use as instruments to judge his own people. He raised up Cyrus to bring him up. He says he raised up Pharaoh. So, so God is not beyond by the power of his word, raising up an adversary to bring us up. I remember when the twin towers came down and I was watching that live that day. And those, some of those verses began to come back to me in the scriptures. And I was thinking to myself, is it possible that God might strengthen our enemies, not righteous people? Neither were the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but God raised them up for his own purposes and by his own counsel to bring, to bring severity and discipline upon his own people. Could it be possible that God would strengthen our enemies for a time so that they may bring upon us the judgment that God has ordained for us? I've said before, many of you may have heard, but John MacArthur, uh, he believes that we are currently under the judgment of God. You are witnessing God's judgment in increments, and the severity will grow and intensify as we move forward, and it certainly seems like that in the last five years, and so I would find it hard to dispute John MacArthur, but what's the source? What's the source of that? Do you think that the enemies rise up and and can overthrow a free nation and a Christian people that that aren't... Allowed to do so by the sovereign hand of God Almighty who raises up kings and puts down kings. And in whose hands the king's heart is like rivers of water. God is is sovereign. And so he assigns to himself here the hewing and the slaying by the words of his mouth and through the prophets. Notice in verse 8 through 10. Is really a description of what, not ought, what ought not to be in the life of Israel. Now, this was really fascinating study for me. Gilead, he said, is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with blood. In fact, Shechem, another place, he says, and as raiders wait for a man, they're hiding in wait, waiting for the uh, come along. Uh, instead of this, instead of robbers, it's a band of priests. And they're laying in wait, lying in wait for those who are coming down to Shechem. Now, what really brings the context of that home is that the Gilead spoken of here is believed to be Ramoth Gilead. And Shechem uh, was both ref- uh, cities of refuge, Levitical cities of refuge uh, west east of the Jordan. They were on the other side of Jordan from Judah. And they were to be cities to where if you somehow accidentally killed someone, their relatives had an obligation to avenge the blood of their relative. But you were innocent. You didn't mean to. It's an accident. You didn't, you didn't plan or stalk them for murder. You just accidentally caused the death of their loved one. Well, they're coming after you. As a matter of honor, they're coming after you to take you out. And God had assigned these cities among the Levites to where if you were in that situation, you could flee to that city and they would protect you there from the avenger of blood. And you could stay there. And my, my understanding is that you could stay there until the high priest in the year that you came there uh, was there, they would actually have a trial and if they ruled it, it was an accident, you could stay there and be spared from the avenger of blood all the way until the point to the high priest that was over your trial until he dies. And then you could go back to your home free. And so they, this is a place, think about what he's saying here. Gilead. Ramoth Gilead was a city of refuge from which, from which the, the blood guilty could come and flee for preservation. It was a place of protection and guarding against the avenger. That's what it was to be, but what does it become? Full of blood. There was to be no blood there. It was, a, it was to be a bloodless city. It was a city that would guard against the spilling of blood. And you ran there to keep your blood from being spilt in revenge for an accidental death you might have caused. So when you came into the city, the last thing you would be expecting was a blood in the city, much less tracked with blood. You see what he's saying here? That's how far you've gone, Israel. You're you're like that refuge city that ought to have been a place where there was life and peace and joy and comfort and safety and security. You have become this place that rather than being that, it's filled with bloody footprints. That means there's blood everywhere and you can't walk without walking through it. And everywhere you go, you track it. It's as if Gilead, that city of refuge, had become like that. Shechem was a similar place. And what does he say? It's become like a band of priests hiding out on the road down to Shechem. And when the refugee comes and he seeks refuge there in the, in the, in the city of refuge, the priests that ought to be ministering in that city of refuge jump out by surprise and murder him in the street before he even gets there. That's a serious indictment. I mean, and you wonder why the severity in the hand of God is coming down so heavily upon Israel. All that they were supposed to be in the world. God's witness. A vessel for the display of His glory. The people of His prophecy of a coming Messiah with whom even the Gentiles would see the light. All the blessings and all the privileges they had in their choosing and what they ought to have been they were not at all. Not only had they fallen short of that, they, had living, they were living in a way contradictory to all of that. He mentions here as well, sort of summarizing verse 9, when he says this, he says, Surely, surely they have committed crime. The city of refuge, what ought to have been. It's full of bloody footprints, and they raid and attack and murder those who would make their way to such a city. Surely that's a crime. So it it makes me wonder was Israel just oblivious? We're, we're, We're offered the sacrifices. We don't understand. We don't understand. What have we done wrong? And it's as if God is saying to them, Is this not a crime? You have failed utterly to live as the people that I've called you to live. Is that not a crime? And is that not a crime worthy of the severity of the judgment upon you? And in application, I would say that to us today. I mean, we stand as Americans sometimes and we act like we don't, do we not have bloody hands? I mean, we endorse policies and we enact policies that are destroying the lives of the weak and the vulnerable, and we exploit them on every turn. And, and the, we're talking nowadays about sex trafficking and child trafficking and all sorts of things, and we're exploiting on every turn. Is that not a crime? Is that not a crime? Even if our legislatures say that it's not a crime anymore, let me say, before the eyes of a holy God, it is a crime. It is a crime and putting babies to death in the womb is a crime. It'll always be a crime no matter what kind of debate you involve yourself in trying to justify that. It'll always be a crime to take vulnerable lives. And we just remembered sanctity of life Sunday, but it's as equally a crime to exploit the vulnerable, whether they be poor or whether they be uneducated or ignorant in some way to use them, to exploit them, to increase one's own gain. It is a crime. It is a crime. And so we are guilty in as many ways as Israel was. I said this morning that we are the seeds that brought destruction upon Sodom and Gomorrah are growing and, Bearing fruit in our nation today. Same seeds. Same seeds. Are they any less worthy of judgment in our generation than they were in theirs? I don't think so. And the only thing I can think is the mercy of God restraining that heavy judgment until he calls all his people home. And I can't even imagine what the wrath that will be poured out into this world once he's taken his children home is going to be like. I don't think we have any conception of the horrors that we'll see when those evils unfold in this world. So they had become what they ought not to have been. Verse 10, he says, summarizing as well, I think, he says, in the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing, horrible thing. It's just repetitive because he's already said this, but he says there again, Ephraim's harlotry is there really just quite literally harlotry is to sell oneself sell oneself to profit from the sale of oneself that's what you've done israel you've sold yourself to to your enemies your lust have driven you you've you've minimized life down to the basic elements and you've sold yourself you belong to me i purchased you i called you out among all the peoples of the world, world I betrothed you to myself and you have sold yourself thinking to be profiting and thinking that my choosing you was somehow costing you it's amazing but have we not as well done that in many ways i think in some ways the the american church the institutional church has sold itself a long time ago uh, we had it amazes me but uh, we had a, a a guest instructor one time. I won't call the name, but, uh, but he wrote a book, and it was about church growth. And uh, he was the guest teacher. Well, he happened to leave his book there, and he was telling all of us young trainees how to grow a church. And I remember thinking to myself, "Well, I ain't got that. If that's what it takes, I ain't gonna do too well." Uh, but he gave us this seminar and this speech and. And the next week when we came into class, the guy had left his instructional book. And whenever the, our regular professor came in, he looked down and seen the title of the book. And I remember he shut the book like that and he th- threw it. Uh, he didn't lay it down. He pitched it over to the desk to the side. And very, very obviously he wanted to make sure we understood something. Rubbish. Rubbish. God grows the church period. Don't listen to this is what he was saying to us. And I thought to myself, even those days in so many ways in the church in our day, we've sold ourselves. We've got, we've got the professionals and they've told us what it takes to grow a church and to build an offering and to fill the offering plates up. And, and they're smart guys and they've done all the research and they show us the statistics and we decide that they're the wiser of the bunch and we embrace their policies. And pretty soon We have churches full of people, lots of excitement, and completely devoid of the Spirit of God. That's a frightening thing, and that's selling ourselves. We have played the harlot just like Israel did, and and it is no less warrant for God's judgment upon us as it was Israel. Finally, verse 11 Uh, He mentions, as I've already said, also Judah here, also Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you. Israel's harvest is coming. Uh, I'm prophesying of it, but Judah, don't go away thinking, whew, we just barely missed that one. Understand that there's still a a harvest awaiting you as well. And I think he's talking here in the negative sense when he says, when I restore the fortunes of my people, I think the indication here is I'm talking about restoring the fortunes in Christ. When the the day of Christ comes and the day of redemption, when the truth comes to be born in the world and you reject that, there is a day, there is a day of recompensation coming for you as well. Your harvest and the trajectory you are on Judah will cause you to deny the very savior and the very blood of Christ by which Israel is going to be judged even in this moment. So beware, Judah, because you have a harvest yet ahead of you. And I couldn't help but hearing that in the sense of the future of this nation, of the church in America, uh, even of those who would fiend Christianity or, or profess falsely faith in Christ, uh, I would hear the same words echoing, there is yet a harvest for you. And if you are on the same trajectory as Israel was on, and we know later of Judah, the harvest will be severe. For Judah, it was captivity, as I said, in 586, and for the northern kingdom in 722, but both received a harvest. They are back in Israel now, and I pray for the day that God opens the eyes of many of our our Jewish loved ones, and and they behold the glories of Christ. And I'll shout to the Lord with them, and he will bring many of his people, home to himself, but they will come through the same veil which we come through as Gentiles, and that's the blood of Christ. They will enter into the kingdom through this same thing. So there is a harvest to be received, a severe warning, a sober warning uh, for the church, I think, in America and for America sitting on our laurels thinking that somehow our Constitution assured uh, that we would be a successful nation. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. It was, our, it was our faith in God which, which assured that we would be a nation to begin with. And our founding reflected that faith in God. So it's not the abolition of the Constitution that will rob us of our freedom. It's the abolition of our belief in God. And we see that happening at a breakneck speed in our generation today. And so if America falls, it won't be because her Constitution was, was, uh, was faulty. It will be because her people turned away from the God who founded her. And we would no longer be a beacon of light in the world. So for America, we've got a harvest to be received. We've got a harvest to be received someday. And for the church, uh, there is a harvest for us as well if we're on the same appointed, uh, same trajectory as Israel. So stand with me tonight. That's sort of the conclusion. Uh, As I said, uh, next next Sunday or Sunday night uh, chapter seven gets even heavier uh, more severe uh, but bear it uh, humble ourselves reflect upon our nation our own hearts <clears throat> the condition of the church today and like me when I'm preparing feel the weight of that uh, it it it's weighty in fact it makes me at times just want to just Lord, I don't even want to say this. I don't even want to speak this. It is so hard to hear and so hard and terrifying to contemplate. I'd rather just not talk about it. But every time the Lord says, talk about it, feel it, consider it, and rejoice in the grace that you have in Christ. Because without that, you and I have a harvest yet to reap. And we've been sowing to the whirlwind, we'll be reaping, uh, we'll be, if we've been sowing to the wind, we'll be reaping the whirlwinds. And Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you are not a weak, mushy sort of God that accommodates himself to to us along the way. Lord, you are not demanding righteousness and then tomorrow winking at our unrighteousness. Lord, you are not raining fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah while you wink and think lightly of the same sins in our nation and across this globe. Lord, I thank you that you change not, for if you changed, we would have no hope. Father, I thank you that you are God and you are eternally God. And Lord, I pray for the this country, I pray for the church in America, I pray for this church, I pray for everyone here and myself included, Father, that we would not deceive ourselves into thinking that the same seeds that produced apostasy in Israel and Judah later will not produce the same in us. In order to help us to be ever mindful of what we allow to enter into our minds and our thinking and our thoughts and whether whether in the world through media or social media and all those things, Father, help us to be mindful of what kind of seeds that we're sowing. Father, we thank you most of all for Christ and the cross. Lord, the longer I'm a Christian, the longer I read your word and study your word, the more I realize how central Jesus himself is to all things. Lord, how central the cross is and how central the suffering is. There is no other name truly given under heaven by which men can be saved than that which is given which is Christ. Lord, this is true, and we know it to be true, and we know it more fully each day of our Christian lives to be true. And so, Father, I pray that we would hold fast to the cross, hold fast to Christ and his righteousness, and not of our own, but his And, Lord, we trust that as we hold to him, you will be faithful to bring us through all the way to the end into your presence. Father, bless those who've come tonight. Father, I pray that you would minister in their lives daily and as they go through their work week, that you would bring yourself to their consciousness, their awareness frequently and often throughout the week, that in the slightest and the most mundane of tasks, they may think of you and think of your glory, think of your mercy think of your love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.